Welcome to our uh, webinar today. Uh, this is the first, uh, but hopefully not the last, uh, ICABR IFPRI webinar. And I'm in my uh, last year as president of this International Consortium for Applied Bioeconomy Research. And uh, we're an organization that held, holds annual conferences and do webinars and other activities and we'll hold our 25th annual conference online and maybe partly in Ravello, Italy uh, at the end of June this year. You are all invited, please come. The theme of our conference is going to be the role of the bioeconomy in generating resilience and sustainable development. Today's webinar is a response to concerns uh, that we've had about the challenges and the opportunities for agricultural research systems uh, that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has created. We're concerned that declining funding for agricultural research in most parts of the world will be accelerated by the pandemic. At the same time, uh, advances in biology, information technology are providing new tools to increase productivity and um, the health of crops and livestock to improve the soil health, to improve nutrition and health of people. Um, our question is, will the massive investments in research on COVID-19 uh, contribute new research tools to the agriculture research system and new innovations to farmers? Uh, will COVID-19 uh, accelerate the use of the new tools that are already spreading to improve agriculture and rural well-being. These last two questions have turned into something of a, of a personal quest on my part to understand the new opportunities created by COVID-19 research. Um, and this quest, of course, is hampered to a certain degree by the fact that I'm an economist with limited knowledge of biology and agricultural sciences. Luckily, I was able to link up with John McDermott and Ruben Echeria to uh, put this conference together. And uh, I'm hoping that the uh, panelists will help me um, understand these questions and that you and the audience will also contribute your knowledge so that we can come out of this session with a better idea of how to uh, build the agriculture research systems of low and middle income countries um, uh, into a better and more resilient system in the future. Uh, one special note of thanks uh, to Katarla Taylor and her colleagues at IFPRI who have, have uh, disciplined us and gotten us uh, together to this point and uh, a big thank you to them. They're behind the scenes and they're what's making this, this whole system happen. So now I'll turn it over to John. Thank you, Carl. Um, so my name is John McDermott, as you heard, and I'm the director of the CGR program on agriculture for nutrition and health, which is led by IFPRI. And on behalf of IFPRI, I'm delighted to welcome you viewing live or in the recorded future to this future virtual policy seminar, how can public food and agricultural research institutions be strengthened and rebuilt after the COVID-19 pandemic. And this seminar is part of the IFPRI COVID-19 seminar series. 
Um, now we're delighted to be co-organizing this seminar with the International Consortium on Applied Bioeconomy Research. Um, and glad that Carl is joining us as the moderator. Now, um, in introduction, food and agriculture research is a long-term enterprise, often driven by short-term investment priorities. And within this context, COVID-19 has introduced both challenges and related opportunities, as you're going to hear. One challenge will be increasing competition for public research funds, perhaps putting increased pressure on long-term investments in crop breeding and sustainable intensification of food systems relative to health investments. We have good examples of how long-term public research have been quickly leveraged during COVID-19 in accelerating rapid innovations in food supply chains with digital and other tools, and also the basic biotechnology and nanotechnology research that underpinned the un unprecedented success in rapidly developing novel COVID-19 vaccines. The other great challenge is this disruption due to COVID-19 of food systems highlighting their complexity, weaknesses, and strengths. There was already considerable assessment on how food systems needed strengthening to improve health, sustainability, and inclusion outcomes. Pandemics have been added to climate and economic shocks and expected challenges to future food system resilience. In this virtual seminar, we have an interesting group of discussants. I look forward to their thoughts and the comments and questions coming from the audience. Uh, thank you and back to you, Carl. Okay, thanks very much, John. Uh, so let's uh, begin. Um, and uh, before I introduce the first speaker, I want to um, mention that we really want to make this as interactive as possible. Uh, and we want to hear from you. Uh, so to participate in the question and answer session that follows the speaker's uh, remarks, please submit your questions to ifpre.org, ifpre um, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, or by using the hashtag uh, askifpre on Twitter. Uh, we'll be monitoring these and the questions will be ultimately channeled to me and then uh, I'll distribute them to the uh, panelists. Um, so our uh, first speaker is Vish Nene, and he's the co-leader of the Animal and Health uh, and Human Health Program at the International Livestock Research Institute in Nairobi. Uh, Vish. Um, we can't hear you right now, Vish. Sorry. Okay. Start again. <laughs> okay. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Carl, uh, for the invitation to participate in this meeting uh, and to present some of the thoughts and activities that we've been uh, brewing at Dilry. Um, the title of the presentation is there, so I'm not going to repeat it. Uh, but as the audience today may not be too familiar uh, on the general importance of infectious diseases, uh, I thought that a reminder on this would be a useful starting point. Uh, next slide, please. So unfortunately, uh, diseases are universal. 
Uh, they affect uh, animal health uh, and result in billions of dollars uh, lost uh, per year in productivity. Uh, and many tropical diseases uh, represent uh, under-researched problems uh, and they are also neglected. Uh, in human health, uh, foodborne diseases uh, are estimated to cause over 2 billion people to fall uh, ill on an annual basis. Um, and most animal source food uh, is sold um, in wet markets uh, and they're often unsafe. And finally, in environmental health, uh, most new human diseases uh, spill over from animals and many have a wildlife livestock interface. Now, the intersection between these three areas of health uh, is an important one. It's the sweet spot for One Health uh, approaches, which is particularly relevant uh, in the context of zoonotic diseases and certainly for COVID-19. Uh, next, please. So uh, the diseases have always had a negative impact on society and food production as well. Uh, and the COVID-19 pandemic has refocused global attention uh, on diseases per se. Next, please. Uh, there are three main tools that are needed in the face of disease outbreaks. Uh, diagnostics to implement biosecurity measures to prevent the spread. Uh, drugs to treat infection or reduce severity of disease and prevent death. Uh, and vaccines to do the same, namely to prevent or reduce uh, severity of disease and prevent death. Now, innovations in these three areas are essential in both human and livestock uh, health research. Uh, next, please. Uh, I'll principally deal with vaccine innovations as this is the research area that I'm most closely involved in. Uh, and vaccines uh, offer a cost-effective and sustainable option for control of human and animal diseases, uh, especially in low resource environments. Uh, but vaccine development is usually a long process. It's a costly affair with high failure rates and hence it's a risky business. So the fact that we have COVID vaccines so quickly after the outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 uh, just over a year ago uh, is truly a remarkable achievement. Next, please. So what can we learn from COVID uh, vaccine research that's uh, led to the vaccines that we have? So these efforts fall into five main types of vaccines as listed here. Uh, we have genetic vaccines developed by Pfizer, uh, BioNTech and Moderna using the mRNA platform technology. Uh, there are vectored vaccines developed by Oxford uh, uh, University and AstraZeneca uh, using an attenuated chimpanzee uh, adenovirus platform. Uh, there's a recombinant protein-based vaccine developed by Novavax using a nanoparticle platform. We have inactivated uh, SARS-CoV-2 pathogen-based vaccines developed by several companies. And uh, there are efforts going on to develop live attenuated SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, but these are still at the preclinical stage. Now here I've only listed those companies that have a product that's already been authorized for use in humans. And at ILRI, we have at one time or another tested all of these vaccine types uh, in our livestock vaccine program, except for the mRNA platform. Now this platform actually comes in different flavors uh, and I'm aware of other labs, uh, livestock labs looking at different mRNA platforms uh, to the BioNTech uh, Moderna one. However, this is where we run into technology suitability problems uh, as livestock vaccines are highly sensitive to price. And in the current format, mRNA technologies are most likely too expensive 
to develop into commercial livestock vaccines. But nevertheless, the platform is attractive as a research tool, as it is a rapid response technology. Uh, and in addition to stimulating what are called virus neutralizing antibodies, uh, it's reported to also stimulate cell mediated immunity, in particular a subset of T cells called cytotoxic T cells. And you may have been following this in the news. Now the latter type of immunity is required for two diseases that we work on. African swine fever, which is a viral disease of pigs, which is currently a major problem as it threatens the global pig population. And East Coast fever, which is uh, a disease caused by tick-borne uh, protozoan pathogen, which occurs in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now the technologies we've tested so far do not do such a great job in generating these types of T cells. And so the mRNA platform could actually be a useful tool to explore in, in livestock. Uh, nanoparticle vaccines also come in different flavors. And so while we've not specifically tested the Novavax method, we are working with another nanoparticle system uh, in collaboration with uh, the Institute for Protein Design uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And finally on the slide, although we have live attenuated COVID vaccines that are being developed, uh, uh, they haven't been come about yet. This is an area of active research at ILRI. So next slide, please. So here we are using um, CRISPR-Cas and synthetic genomic technologies, which seem to be of interest. Uh, we're using these to develop novel attenuated vaccines uh, targeting African swine fever, which I just mentioned, uh, and also a bacterial disease called contagious bovine pneumonia, which causes a fatal disease in cattle. Now, CRISPR-Cas technologies can also be used to develop novel diagnostics, uh, which we're also experimenting with. So in closing, uh, if I can have the next slide, um, I think we're likely to see an increased investment in livestock zoonosis research and control, and in particular on viruses that have a pandemic potential. Linked to this, there is a strong argument for assessing vaccine technologies in livestock, including, for example, the mRNA platform that I mentioned. Now, the idea here would be to develop safety and efficacy data in livestock prior to undertaking human trials, not to develop livestock vaccines per se. But if a technology is found that is suitable and cost-effective uh, for use in both humans and livestock, then all the better. Uh, and the Oxford University vector vaccine that I referred to is potentially one such platform. Uh, and we've contributed to this type of research, uh, particularly looking at novel Rifali fever vaccines. Now, an overall increase in such studies will inevitably lead to increased knowledge and research tools, uh, which could be applied to tackle other livestock diseases. For example, uh, endemic bacterial and parasitic zoonoses, and also non-zoonotic livestock diseases. Uh, both of these remain major constraints to livestock productivity and health uh, in low and middle income countries. So with that, Carl, uh, uh, I'll stop and thank you for your attention. Great, thanks, Vish. Uh, very interesting. This is this is uh, answered several of my questions and and leads to even more questions for the future. <laughs> um, the uh, second speaker is uh, also coming from Nairobi just now, uh, Dr. B. M. Prasanna, who is the director of the Global Maize Program and the CGIAR uh, research program on maize from uh, the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center. Simit. 
Dr. Prasanna. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Uh, let me share my screen quickly. Okay. Yeah, hope I could, uh, hope you could see my screen, Carl. Okay. Um, so the topic, uh, first of all, thanks to Carl for inviting me to give a talk in this uh, very important webinar. Uh, the topic I would be focusing on is strengthening seed security. What is the new imperative uh, during this time and after the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, the COVID-19, as we all know, have, uh, has created an unprecedented situation. It has a, already a deep impact on the society, economy, and most importantly, the agri-food systems. Uh, there is a disproportionate effect on the poor, uh, leading to food insecurity and nutrition crisis. And simultaneously, farmers are, uh, are, very, are under deep pressure due to onslaught by transboundary pests like locusts and fall armyworm, especially in Africa and in Asia. And this overall crisis has indeed heightened the need uh, for building more resilient and uh, innovative uh, agri-food systems. Uh, so uh, how did it affect our work, especially, for example, on the breeding work? Fortunately, several countries in Africa as well as in Asia have considered <clears throat> agricultural research for development as an essential service. And therefore, uh, with a few restrictions, our field work with partners as well as at our research stations uh, continued unabated uh, thanks to a very heavy dedication and commitment from uh, scientists and technicians following uh, safe distancing norms. So providing climate resilient and nutritionally enriched seed to the farmers uh, should be considered as an essential service. And uh, unfortunately, increasing frequency and intensification of erratic weather events at the same time due to the changing climates uh, could further exacerbate the current crisis. So resource constrained smallholders, uh, especially the women and marginalized communities in the target geographies where CJR serves, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Asia and Latin America, need access to this climate resilient and nutritionally enriched crop varieties, be it maize, wheat, rice, legumes, or many other crops, dryland cereals, much more than ever before. And uh, that's the most important thing uh, why agricultural research for development cannot be uh, put on a, a back pedal right now. One more important area where uh, agri-food systems can tremendously contribute to the recovery and resilience of agri-food systems is to treat food as the medicine and medicine as the food. Uh, nutrients with capability to boost the immune system strength uh, when safe levels are not exceeded include zinc, iron, selenium, uh, vitamin A, D, and C, and so on. Among this, uh, a paper published by the World Health Organization in 2020 clearly points out the need for addressing the issue of child malnutrition, which has become uh, further exacerbated during this crisis. Uh, CGIR particularly focuses uh, on biofortification uh, for zinc, iron, and vitamin A. And this is really important. Uh, it provides a, a safety net for maintaining the healthy immune systems, especially for those millions of vulnerable populations in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And uh, there is a huge opportunity for us to enrich our product profiles uh, with enhanced nutritional quality, especially 
uh, zinc and provitamin A. Uh, a paper published in 2019, in fact, highlights uh, Reed and co-workers that there is an abundance of evidence uh, that has accumulated over the last 50 years to demonstrate the antiviral activity of zinc uh, against a variety of viruses and via numerous mechanisms. And this is indeed, uh, this work has to be reinvigorated as well as further strengthened uh, now and uh, in future. Uh, so access to affordable and healthy diets uh, through a holistic approach to nutrition and health is the need of the hour. This comes not only through biofortified varieties, but also smart food formulations. We need to scale up and deploy this more actively through strategic partnerships. Establish our strength and collaboration with biomedical sciences, especially for a better understanding of traits that contribute to the improved metabolism uh, in humans. Enhance the content of under-researched bioactive compounds uh, that particularly strengthen the immune response. This is an important lesson from COVID-19 pandemic. And political economy, including communication, advocacy, education, and behavior change uh, in promoting biofortified crops as well as the food formulations is really, really key. So far, if you look at this figure on maize, uh, our high zinc varieties have been deployed only in Latin America, whereas pro-vitamin A has uh, disseminated uh, not just in Latin America, but also in Sub-Saharan Africa and countries in uh, Asia. Uh, so there is a clear need for high zinc to be uh, further mainstreamed into the product profiles uh, for Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as Asia in the near future. How has the seed sector responded to the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, an excellent article by the Wageningen Group on rapid assessments of the impact of COVID-19 on the availability of quality seed to the farmers, especially in Ethiopia, Myanmar, Nigeria, and Uganda. Uh, various sectors, they have analyzed them and clearly demonstrated that this has caused uh, reduced mobility, increased cost of transactions, and uh, thereby reducing the availability of quality seed in some of these countries, delays in development and release of improved varieties, as well as delays in high quality seed production and distribution, and finally weakening of the varietal promotion efforts. So the efforts are heterogeneous, but at the same time, overall, no country uh, has been left untouched in terms of uh, uh, this crisis. Simit's uh, own study through a project called Nepal Seed and Fertilizer Project uh, has, has analyzed the impact of COVID-19 lockdown on farming communities and agribusinesses in Nepal. And about 86% of the agrovets in Nepal expressed uh, significant difficulty in obtaining supplies uh, due to the blockage of transportation and product unavailability, leading to 50 to 90% dip in agribusiness. Uh, this situation has been remedied in the second half of 2020, uh, but agribusiness uh, uh, have taken a hit. Uh, a one-size-fits-all relief package would not be effective uh, for farming communities living in different domains. So a major support should be on facilitating transport and distribution of key inputs, especially seed and fertilizers. Uh, Louis Perling uh, looked at the informal seed systems, uh, whereas uh, Walter the Beef's uh, article looked at the formal seed systems. And I like the way Louis mentions that think forward and expand response towards market-led support 
especially to the informal markets, including gender-sensitive, nutrition-focused seed systems, village community, seed banks, and so on. My final slide is about strengthening formal and informal systems. We need to implement new and more effective ways that lessons learned from COVID-19, digital seed production and delivery roadmaps, digitization of varietal releases, seed inventory management and varietal promotion, virtual engagement, not just face-to-face -face with seed companies and agro dealers. And there are innovative methodologies coming up with regard to remote sensing and visual imaging technologies uh, to guards the production of uh, seed in seed production fields. So in my view, uh, friends, the journey for the recovery and resilience of agri-food systems must be holistic and inclusive and uh, should in fact begin now. Thank you so much. Great, uh, Dr. Prasanna. Uh, nice um, uh, overview of, of the issues that, uh, that maize is facing. Um, and, and many other crops around the world. Um, the uh, next speaker is Delia Grace Randolph, who is a professor of food safety systems at University of Greenwich, uh, London. Uh, Delia? Yes, uh, welcome all. I'm also 40% working as a joint appointee for, for ILRI. So I am part of the CTIR. Um, uh, I don't have any slides and I, I, I don't have very much optimism. I know that in 1900, we had about, uh, Africa is my favorite continent. I've lived here for 20 years and I, I love everything about Africa. Um, and in 1900, we had about 100 million Africans and now we have 1 billion. And in 2020, we will have 4 billion. And behind every African or every European, there stands six or 10 uh, domestic animals, cows, camels, birds, turkeys, because that's what, what feed us. Um, and at the same time, the wild animals are getting smaller and smaller. They now reckon they're less than 4% of the, 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 the ecosystem in Africa. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, we're looking at the small things. We're, we're, we're pretending we're doing big things. We're looking at CRISPR and CAS and new breeding and, and markets and innovation. But in actual fact, we are totally spoiling our planet and our planet just cannot exist with to all of these people and all of these domestic animals and nothing left, nothing left of natural systems or natural wildlife, you know, and they get stressed, they get incredibly stressed. And then they bring out diseases like COVID and SARS and MERS. And it's, you know, when, when, when animals get very stressed they 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 become just like little little soup cans of of bringing out very dangerous diseases and we've made it like that because we 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 we've shut them out we we've, we've taken over too much and we've given them too little so 
I'm not talking about, you know, anything very particular about COVID. I've written so much about COVID. If you can Google me, you'll find what I've written and the drivers and the emerging diseases and the influenzas and all the rest. But but I, I, I really want to challenge ourselves that it's just like changing deck chairs on the Titanic, you know. We're, we're all just going to go down in the flood unless we stop doing things differently and stop pretending that by messing around in the margins and doing our little bits of science, it's going to get things better because it won't. That's my thoughts on the issue. Thank you very much for listening to me. Oh, great. Thanks very much, Delia. Uh, and I'm sure this should stimulate questions and comments. Um, and uh, that'll be that'll be great. Um, before we go to the next speaker, let me just uh, give you another reminder that uh, those of you that are tuning in live can submit your brief questions to ifbree.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or uh, using Twitter on hashtag AskIfBri. Um, and we'll uh, deal with them uh, uh, soon. Our next speaker is um, Ruben, yeah, Ruben Echeverria. And uh, he is a senior research fellow at IFPRI and uh, until recently was a director general of SEAT. Ruben? Thank you, Carl. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I would like to compliment, uh, um, compliment a bit the discussion of vaccines or seeds, uh, all these biological fantastic things that we are doing from the science perspective, and also comment a bit on, on Delia's point. So um, uh, this is a com complementing mean, meaning from the institutional change policies markets and institutions play a major role. As we all know, you cannot have research without researchers. Well, you cannot have technical change without the complementary institutional change that goes together. So the two points I wanted to bring today, Carl and colleagues to the panel, is that um, there are a huge opportunities to strengthening public agricultural research systems. So I will be talking about public agricultural research systems, particularly in the global south, and particularly the low income and the lower middle income countries. That if you put those together, there are about 85 countries. And those are, are, are uh, focus of concern in the sense how we are going to, what opportunities we have thanks to COVID to strengthen those systems. Particularly looking at the question at the bottom, how are these national research systems coping with the stress and what's the outlook on the reduced public budget situation that may happen? Thank you, Catala, for for the next slide. So just to just to one, you know, we we all we we are all kind of experts now after a year of COVID on the, on what's going on, and thanks that uh, to many things, um, there is still a lot of food. We are not facing yet a, a food crisis, but there are a lot of fragile food supply chains. I give you just one example from Grow Intelligence. Uh, you can read there, uh, China is doing a lot of great things, uh, but 
but uh, uh, apparently uh, China is getting very close to be self-sufficient in food. So talking about fragility, trade, long value chains, and the fragile environment thanks to COVID. In the next uh, slide, please. So this is um, this is IFPRI research and at its best and partners and the, it's a it's a huge impact. We all know this, but just to put some numbers here on the on the panel. Uh, by 2020, the best estimate was that global poverty uh, was going to increase for about 150 million people. That was last year. Uh, we will see what the update looks. Uh, and, and you have the numbers there. And the impact on global nutrition is, is terrible. Uh, so this is just two, two numbers to summarize what we know. In Latin America and the Caribbean region that I've been connected to, uh, the last year, may mean 20 years going back economically and socially because of the huge impact. In the next one, so we have a huge, uh, in the next slide please, uh, we, we do have a, a huge impact. And the question is, can this recovery catalyze uh, new food systems? Could, could, could this transform? Uh, we, we all have all of these uh, expectations and reports and a lot of great research on how to transform food systems. Could, can we do that thanks to COVID, uh, thinking as COVID as an accelerator? In the next one. So FAO has done a great job on putting things together. And uh, there are, for example, uh, some consensus on a few areas that uh, a coherent response to COVID uh, is, is needed and you, there are a few areas and I just highlight this to, to mention that one of the areas is the one that we are talking about in this panel is how to strengthen national agricultural research. System. We can have fantastic vaccines thanks to ILRI, beautiful seeds thanks to CIMIT and many other centers and so on and so forth. All of this is international and food policies through IFPRI and others. This is all international research. What's going on on the ground? What's going on in this low-income uh, national research institutes. So we have a lot of solutions, uh, as, as the chief economist of FAO keeps saying, we have a lot of solutions to transform food systems, but we don't know how to fit them together. We don't know the trade-offs. In the next one. So I want to look a little more on this. Uh, on, on this uh, just, so wh what are we strengthening? Look at the numbers. I know we don't have time, but um, there is a dark green, very small at the bottom of each histogram. That that very little line of dark green is the low-income countries. This is the agricultural research investment trends, and of course, high-income countries are investing quite a bit. Middle-income countries too, and of course, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, and others. But how about the low income? And we are talking about, if we put the two together, we are talking about close to 100 countries. So there are no investments. So what are we strengthening? Based on what? Uh, and the next one. So this is the intensity, which is a much better way of measuring investments in agriculture research. And you see it globally, we are not there at 1%, which means that for $100 produced uh, in the economy, thanks to agriculture, we are only investing $1. So that's 1% uh, in investment intensity, which is nothing really very low. Uh, high income countries are about 3%, and you have there the rest of the number. Low income countries, half a dollar 
can we really think that we are going to transform food systems in reality on the ground in these hundred, hundreds of countries in, in the global south with investment half a dollar for every hundred dollars produced? That's the, the key question that we, we keep asking from the institutional change perspective. Next. So that was all the situation before COVID. So the world has changed a lot uh, since many of the national public research organizations were created. Big changes, you, you know it, new demands for public investments. We want to do bioeconomy and landscape restoration, a lot of market failure, public good type of things that national research systems should be looking at. On top of it, we have the fantastic life science and digital technological revolutions. But so far, we always leave for, for the end of our reports, of our slides, the little institutional change and the policies linked to those financing public food and agricultural research changes that we want to make. In the next one. Um, so on top of all of that, now we have COVID. We have had COVID for a year. Uh, next one. So where, where are we now? What's, what's, the, what's the perspective? Well, the, one of the best services I've been seeing is particularly, I'm not doing this on purpose because Carl is the chair in the panel, but uh, his Carl and colleagues have done a preliminary evidence survey of what's the impacts of COVID. And Prasanna already mentioned good, good results. So they classify, and you can go to the literature and find the paper, they classify as a first phase, a short-term impacts. That was 2020. What happened? What happened with the national research system? Well, fantastic. Uh, they were declared essential services, labs, people, talents, infrastructure were provided all from the public research, ag research systems to fight, uh, to help in the COVID big fight. Now, we may be in phase two, according to this survey, which is, well, what's going to happen with funding? Funding, we already know, is too little. And now with the huge deficits ahead in the public, uh, government budgets, we still don't know. So we may be in this phase two in the middle of it. And then hopefully uh, we will have a phase three on the recovery, which is what's what's to transform. So my, my main point here in this uh, conversation uh, is that uh, there is a huge, huge opportunity given all of these challenges playing at once to rethink these national research systems from the public sector, how to strengthen them in a, with, with all of these new evidence. Next one. So I, there is a huge opportunity to rethink. Can we, can we uh, I mean, I am an optimist, but I don't think the budgets of these public research institutes will go up in the low and the middle income countries, uh, in the lower middle income countries. So we need to reprioritize. We've been chatting for 30, 40 years on public-private partnerships. Well, we should uh, scale them up. This is a great time to do it. We should put a lot of emphasis in updating research portfolios, how we update the priorities, how we achieve efficiencies, are we duplicating across countries? Can we do many more things at the regional and international level? Can we do much more cooperation within the country? Are we talking with universities, civil society, private sector, and, and many more? How can we really foster these ecosystems of innovations as, as we call them now? Well, I think there is a lot to improve. Uh, and there is uh, a lot to design and implement a much more focused results-led portfolio and not uh, and, and avoid the temptation of retitling all things that we do with just COVID in our research titles. One more. I have only one less than a minute. So 
just to conclude, and then perhaps we can pick up in questions and answers. Uh, COVID has accelerated several things that were already happening, like digital. And, 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 you know, and now everybody believes in much more than before on science and biology and so on. So it's a good, good up, but uh, many countries in the global south were not well prepared. Very scarce investments in research. So are, are, we, are we prioritizing that well, given the big transformation that we want to make? And finally, a huge technical and institutional uh, innovation opportunity ahead if public research organizations in the global south update to new priorities. So this is a good time for institutional change. Thank you very much. One more, I think I have one more to say thank you. Thanks, Catala. Okay, hey, uh, Yeah, thanks very much. And um, we'll uh, go to our final speaker, who's uh, Ben Durham. And oops, yeah, and um, he is the uh, director chief of bioinnovation, which is part of the National Department of Science and Innovation, South Africa. Uh, ben, great, thanks very much. Checking my yes, I am not on mute. Um, firstly, thanks very much for the invitation to participate in this really important discussion. Um, I, I'm hoping that, although it's not in the IFPRI mandate, that this discussion won't be limited to agriculture, it'll be on all aspects of, of life, as both Carl and Delia have, have uh, mentioned. My, uh, so thanks very much for the invitation. My talk is slightly different from the uh, previous talkers in that I am a national government official and I'm giving a national government perspective on this. Um, so a, a brief background to the situation in South Africa. Um, agriculture forms about 2.6% of GDP in South Africa. So a relatively small amount, which is quite different from most of the rest of, of Africa, where uh, the proportion of agricultural GDP is much higher. Um, agriculture provides 10% employment. Um, the, the key issue to note is that in South Africa, we have huge unemployment. Um, uh, last year, 2020, it was uh, evaluated at 30.8%. Um, unemployment. That's the conservative definition. But if you look at the expanded definition, which includes people who have given up looking for work, it extends to 43% of work capable adults are unemployed. So it's, it's a massive uh, challenge that we have in any case. During the COVID pandemic, this unemployment has risen by nearly 15%, 2.2 million more South Africans are unemployed. So um, we have a huge social crisis on, on our hands. Um, the, the pandemic, um, it's infected 1.4 uh, million South Africans out of a total of about 58 million. Um, we've had 44,000 deaths so far, and we have just peaked and are starting to come down from our second wave of the, of the uh, virus. Um, then giving a, a brief picture on the role of DSI, the Department 
of Science and Innovation, a, a national department. Uh, we provide strategic direction and investment in technology development. Um, a key issue then is we are not the Department of Agriculture driving the agricultural expansion in South Africa. We are merely developing technologies and we thus do not have the pull through power that some of our sister departments have. So bottom, bottom line is what we need to do and what we do do is coordinate our activities with all relevant stakeholders. That's both government and industry and civil society to make sure that the technology development that we have developed is both relevant and desirable and will find a, a market. So we are providing the strategic direction, but we're not able to do the pull through. We do that in concert with other stakeholders in, in society. Um, some of the challenges the pandemic has imposed on us, and, and I think Ruben's given a, a very good picture um, of the least developed countries, it has had a massive impact. Um, a key thing to note is that South Africa has had good rains this year and, and last year, and we are expecting a bumper crop. Now, you may think that that will mitigate all the effects of the pandemic, but it doesn't. The impacts are massive and very largely economic, um, not so much in the agricultural direct space, but because of lockdown and the closure of businesses due to um, the, the, the various stages of lockdown we've had, um, there's been a massive economic impact. Um, government has put across the board a 20% cut on expenditure and obviously funding the public research institutes then has suffered by a 20% cut. So massive impacts and there've been salary uh, freezes and vacancy freezes um, in, in the public sector. And so despite the fact that we are having a bumper crop, crop this year, um, there is profound impact. Um, this is obviously having a direct short-term impact on students and on publications. For, for this year and probably next year, but the trickle on effect will be fairly substantial beyond that and still to be determined. Um, nevertheless, what the pandemic has done is made us realize the importance of technology. The world is an incredibly busy place and is only getting busier and more competitive and what this pandemic has made us realize is that technology is essential um, for the agricultural sector. And what we need to be doing is investing more in the various technologies. And I'm not only referring to the digital and systems type technologies, which are critical, um, that has been previously mentioned by some of the speakers, but all, all systems that relate to data management, to enhancing efficiencies in the systems, in managing biosecurity such that our trade capabilities improve. Um, there are a whole range of, of issues that we need to make sure are more effective and more efficient, allowing uh, South African farmers to be more productive, to be more resilient in the face of adversity. Um, the second last point I, I want to make is that this world is 
highly competitive um, and it ranges from the individual scale where you are competing against a similar researcher for the limited funds that, that there are, uh, to businesses that are competing with other businesses in the environment, to countries that are competing with other countries. So th the world is highly competitive and we're it's a necessary part and it is a positive part of, of, uh, of life. We need to protect our knowledge, we need to protect our intellectual property, and we all have technology development interests. Nevertheless, what the South African government has realized, um, and I'm sure this is similar across the world, is that the role of national government is to actually harness the various skills that we have and bring people together such that we can work in the best interests of the country. Um, I've been given a, a note to, to wrap to, uh, I've got a minute left. The final point that I want to make is the, the climate change crisis that we are in has made the world sit up and realize we're in this together. It's not just South Africa alone. It is the entire globe that is facing this challenge. So what, what is critical is that um, we must find a solution, not just for South Africa, not just for the individual businesses and, and so on. We need to find global uh, solutions to the various challenges that, that we have to make this world a more sustainable place, a, a very powerful plea made by, by uh, Delia. Um, the leadership that we must pre, that we must provide must be global. We must not just focus on our own interests. We must look at the, the the global situation and recognize our role in contributing to solutions. Um, we we have recognized the risks from the pandemic that that the, the risk of pandemic, and what we need to do is sit up, take note and act in a more responsible manner to make sure that there is a sustainable future for, for the globe. I will stop there, thank you. Great, um, thanks very much, uh, Ben. And uh, a reminder again that uh, we're taking questions from all uh, that are, you know, everybody that's uh, listening in and uh, please go ahead and, and provide us with questions. I'm going to uh, start, we actually have a little more time because of the efficiency of our speakers today, or maybe the efficiency of the timekeepers, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, so we can uh, uh, have uh, basically about a half hour, a little bit more than that uh, for our, um, our questions. Um, let me um, do one thing, I'm not sure if this is going to, to confuse us or or how we should do this, Delia. But um, I believe that uh, in in our chat, uh, Delia has uh, uh, started a, a question that I can't actually see. And so, um, Delia, can we go to Delia and have her um, uh, make her uh, comment verbally? Uh, uh, Yes. Yeah, so, what would you like me to comment verbally on? Well, it, it it looks like I have a a, a message that says, "If you believe that," and I can't see the rest of it right now. <laughs> you know, it it really it, it, I think people have heard that the statement, "If you believe that, you will believe 
anything. Uh -huh. And some of the statements I've heard on this very interesting and nice discussion, they really, to me, come into, into, the, into the category of, if you believe that, you will actually believe anything. You know, the, 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 the world is falling. The, I, I hardly know how to say it, but... Um, there seems to be a, 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 a little bit of a lack of skepticism and a little bit of a, you know, just that this is the approved mess, you know, it's like a bit like Pravda, you know, this is what, this is what, what, what um, the, the society tells us we, we must believe in, and, or, or the Puritans in America uh, in the 1700s. You know, you, you, this is what you have, this is truth and you have to believe us. And, and when I look at the science, I, I, I'm not really seeing it, you know. I, I, I don't know where people are getting this from. Maybe they can explain it better to me. Maybe I'm just very stupid, a silly girl, and I don't understand what these intelligent men are saying, and they can, they can make everything clear to me. Over. <laughs> Um, anyone from the panel want to uh, to respond to Delia's comments? Yes, Carl. Uh, this is Prasanna. Yeah. Yeah, I think skepticism is good, and uh, it is, but in in uh, quantities that are adequate, but not too much. Uh, the present situation is already very stressful for millions of people or billions of people. Um, but at the same time, I am deeply optimistic that we'll come out of this. But what is really important is to learn the lessons from this whole pandemic. Uh, where are we going wrong? Uh, where are we affecting the planet in a very deeply disturbing way? And what can we do better in terms of building a healthy planet that provides enough for everybody and not caters to the greed of everyone? So I think uh, skepticism has to be mixed with cautious optimism, and we need to rely upon technologies. We need to think about novel ways of dealing with the crisis and start building resilient systems. There is no other option. Uh, there is absolutely no other option than to be optimistic and to be futuristic in terms of our thinking. Okay, uh, anyone else on the panel or? Um, should we go on to, uh, I mean, go back to Delia? I mean, I guess, I, I guess I'd like to ask Delia um, the, the, the sort of, I don't know, should we call it conventional science uh, and technology that we've been talking about to a large extent um, uh, is uh, in, your, you know, in your view, not, not enough. Um, and so I guess I'm, my, my question to you, Delia, is, is um, uh, what, um, what kind of science and uh, policies and investments uh, should we be doing rather than this, uh, you know, perhaps narrow uh, uh, science investments that, uh, that the, the men in this group have been talking about? Yeah, it's all CRISPR, it's all CAS, isn't it? It's all kind of, you know, oh, GMO, it's all doing fun stuff like that. It's all boys with toys. Don't, don't, don't boys like their toys. Um, 
I would say we, we have to take a slightly bigger picture, which is about, you know, the planet, the population, the ecosystems, the wild animals. You know, no one is talking about that. You're all just talking. I'm sorry, I, I hate to say this. I'm part of the CGIR and and um and it's all part of just, you know. It's it's all fun. It's all it's all fun with technology, and and you're so good at that. But I I think we might be missing bits of the bigger picture, and part of the bigger picture is going from a hundred million people in sub-Saharan Africa to four billion people in sub-Saharan sub Africa in two hundred years. You know that's that that's pretty very strange for a. For, for, for a world, a small world, a very small blue world, and we don't have many other worlds like that. Um, and I want everybody to be better educated, and the women especially, the, 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 the best, uh, I, I can talk with myself, the best form of uh, female birth control is, is university education. Um, so how, how do we, you know, it's not just about breeding a different variety of maize or fighting an, an African, you know, fighting locusts. You, we had to, to expand our minds a little. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry yeah. if I'm inappropriate. No, no problem. That's great. Uh, ben, actually, uh, let's see. Yeah, Ben, would you like to comment? Yes, I, I think. I, I sense the uh, deep emotion that Delia is, is is expressing about the planet, and I think we all feel that to to a lesser or greater extent. Um, and uh, and Delia is expressing it very passionately. I'm I'm of the view that this world is technologically advanced, and there is no going back. There is not a way of going back to. The good old days, uh, the the uh, the idyllic rural environment. That those days are gone. We have changed the world already, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, to a level where we currently are, and that the only way forward is through further technological development. Um, so I'm I'm of the view that what we need is. Uh, dramatically different leadership that sits up, wakes up from this uh, climate change crisis, from this pandemic that we're experiencing now, and says, as Cole, as Ruben has said, we need to do things differently. But technology is at the center of doing things differently. We need technologies. We need continual advancement, but we need the leadership to guide that and to find ways of imposing it to make sure that um, humanity is sustainably embedded on this planet and that there is space. And I'm not talking about the tiny little decreasing space for the more natural environment, but there is adequate space for all um, life on, on Earth. So I'm just an advocate of technology. I don't think there's any way to go back. We've got to advance on technology, but we need leadership to make sure that that technology is applied in the most appropriate and adult way. Thank you. 
Um, let me uh, take some of the questions that uh, have been written in by our audience. Um, another uh, big uh, broad question uh, it's, it's been sent in by anonymous <laughs> is, uh, is it important to uh, start thinking about the importance of, of food sovereignty? And is that something that can be uh, combined with uh, development approaches? Anybody want to uh, to respond to this uh, issue of uh, the role of food sovereignty and its, its importance? Carl, I'm happy to come in for a second. Once sure. John, yeah. um, I I think um, one of the things we'll see in in these processes that are being discussed is, you know, the role of of research, of science and evidence in decision-making uh, in which science isn't the determinant, it's a contributor. And a lot of this is structured around what we value in society, what we, what we, what we, what rights we choose, all those kinds of things. And so I think it's important that as scientists, we get much smarter about the kind of political economy and social context in which we're making decisions, which I think relates back a little bit to some of Delia's points. And unfortunately, at the moment, we're not very good at some of these things around broader questions of food system change, around ecological services and how we do that. And uh, we're gonna need to dramatically up our game and probably change our game in terms of how we do research. It's not that these questions are not new and they haven't been around for decades, but our capability of researching them is still pretty bad. And that leads to the frustrations that often we can't contribute to the types of questions that society wants us to help address. Okay, thanks, John. Uh, Ruben wants to, uh, to jump uh, in. Here. Just briefly, to, thank you, Carl, to follow up on exactly that point that uh, John just made. And uh, this is a huge shock so we shouldn't continue to think business as usual. Uh, uh, so going back to the topic of our webinar on how to build uh, agricultural research systems, uh, what's going to happen post-COVID? I think I think um, I, I, this is a huge opportunity to rethink the collaboration at the national, at the regional, at the international level. Uh, I'm also part of the CGR, and I think the one CGR may come at the right time. Uh, we we may be much more uh, together now in the CGR centers and so on to address these huge issues. But the CGR alone is less than two percent of total funding for our research. So we we you know uh, I mean modestly we cannot think of changing the whole world. We can help a lot uh, as we have in the last fifty so years. Now the, at the regional level. The, the, there is this thing that, that I, sometimes I call cooperation to compete. If we, if we can, in Latin America, there are many examples. There, there is a regional fund, uh, there are regional platforms, sub-regional connections. Many of the public research organizations may be duplicating uh, on the investments, the very scarce investment they made. So by, by collaboration, I still hope, uh, I am very optimistic, there's a lot with the, with the current very low budgets that we can do much more if we collaborate a little a, a little better in the public sector. So there are a lot, a lot of experiences there. On the sovereignty of food, I, I, I think, well, uh, the example I put in my slide, China may be close to 
have it. Uh, but I, I think open trade is the best way to, to fight um, uh, food security, obviously, and the, and the evidence is, is right there. Thank you, Carl. Okay. Thanks very much, Ruben. Let me go to another question. Uh, this is sort of in a, another way of framing some of these, these issues. Um, the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, this is from uh, Muhammad Ali Atik from Tunisia. Um, how do you, uh, how do you use the value chains, sorry, how do value chains enhancement mechanisms uh, perform, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm saying this wrong somehow. Um, how do the um, value chains enhancement mechanisms uh, help in farmer outreach and uh, help bring them, in this case, farmers to sustainability after pandemic uh, crisis effects. So what's the role of value chain enhancement in, uh, in uh, reaching some of these goals of uh, reducing the pandemic crisis effect? Um, this is a, a general question. Anyone want to, to uh, take that one on? Yeah, I can jump in. I think value chains are very nice in countries which are quite rich or getting to be rich, like, like North Africa or, you know, Southeast Asia. But um, when you're playing around with value chains in countries which are really low income, you often end up making things worse than they were because there is too much trouble with, with differences in empowerment and, and the powerful people, I, I, I don't want to say things I shouldn't say, but, but the, it's not a social capital driven environment. It's uh, elites oppressing an elite environment. Yeah. So I really hope in North Africa that value chains, and I, I've, read, I've read many papers and they, they seem to show that there is, you know, very, very good opportunities there. So I hope you all the best. Thank you. Carl, can I comment? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. It, it's been our experience um, that the value chain assessment is absolutely critical for an investment in an innovation. If you don't know how the product develops and moves towards the market, you are putting at huge risk the investment that you've made. You need to know every single step along that route and whether there is a gap there or an obstacle to it. And so it allows you to better choose which investments are more likely to be successful and therefore which investments you should make. And secondly, it allows you to identify what gaps need to be filled, what platforms need to be developed, what policies need to be developed in order to allow that value chain to function more effectively. I, I do appreciate that in Africa, the value chains are not well developed, but I would think that it makes it even more critical 
to assess the value chain in order to see whether the great idea that uh, someone may have has a realistic opportunity of reaching the market. Okay. Anyone else on value chain? Or we're good? Um, just a general comment, Carl, that it's very important to understand demand in food systems. And uh, that has been a major failure, I think, of public research in agriculture in the past that we've been very supply driven and haven't understood demands. And I think even small farmers in Africa understand that this is a demand led process and, uh, and they want to understand what those demands are. Great. Okay, shall we take another um, uh, question from the audience? Uh, this is from Jacqueline Edmiston from South Africa. Uh, and um, the question is, would it be accurate to say that it would be better to focus on nutrition and strengthening immune systems rather than depending on uh, vaccines? And I'll kind of combine this with Mohamed Jalo's uh, comments or question in Malaysia. And this says, what measures, practices would you recommend as preventive measures of these value of viral diseases to reduce the risk of outbreaks, especially in the tropics. Um, and uh, so, I don't know, we can go to, to Vish. We haven't heard from you for a little bit. Um, would you uh, uh, want to respond or somebody else want to take this one? Um, so let me, let me just comment on, on, on the use of vaccines. I mean, I, I think, um, the, obviously, there's a role for micronutrients in health, um, as was being alluded to earlier. Um, you, you, you know, and there's a huge industry around that as well, right, in developed worlds where you pop 10 pills and you hope that you're okay. Um, but I, I think, at least to my mind, um, vaccines are, are, are essential. They, they are completely critical. In terms of trying, in terms of protecting against disease, the problem that we're faced with in the vaccine development world is is that um, vaccines tend to be developed with the one size fit all uh, component to it, a little bit like the drug industry, uh, and that's the issue that we're faced with, and, and that's why we have the issues that we're currently seeing in the response to the different types of COVID vaccines, for example, that are being used. And the problem is that we just, our science just isn't big enough and developed enough to be able to tailor stuff to individual needs. Um, in the interim, we don't have any other solutions. So I would say that vaccines are critical. Um, and in their absence, um, I don't see an alternative. Unfortunately, we will just have huge morbidity and death rates occurring, um, and that's not acceptable. Thanks. I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, uh, Ben, did you have a, a response also? Yes, uh, two two quick comments. Um, we we have a I've mentioned we have a bumper crop this year, and South Africa is food secure at a national level, and yet as the captain of our national rugby team has put it, he grew up in a food insecure household. He himself was hungry at times. 
it is absolutely critical that you take the context of, of the region, the, the country, the, the area into account and find ways of making sure that the nutrition is, is adequate uh, for, for all people in, in the country, in the region and, and so on. So national food security and, and the FAO talks about household food security. It is critical that we continue that, that approach. Um, with respect to, to vaccines, um, South Africa, at, at the outbreak of the pandemic, we made the decision not to try and develop our own vaccines, but rather to ramp up our capability to formulate and fill vaccines based on technologies developed elsewhere. So we are going to be manufacturing, but, but not from uh, uh, the, the raw materials, but uh, producing vaccines because of the capability that has been developed. Um, but this pandemic has allowed us, and I'm just in the process now of, of uh, putting a proposal through where we are looking at a One Health vaccine development platform that because of the, the crisis that we've gone through, there has been political support to invest in certain infrastructure that will help with risk mitigation for diseases in, in the future. So I, I don't think you can say one is more important than the other nutritional vaccines. You've got to find an appropriate way for the context to take it forward. Okay. Um, let's see, Ruben. Oh, no, hold on. Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me, Delia, did you want to, uh, to comment on this? Um, yes, no? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I really don't go down this rabbit hole, but, but, but there are, you know, I, I, I think people who are over 70 and have lots of comorbidities, the, the, the most intelligent thing they can do is take the vaccine, but there are lots of, lots of messy things about these vaccines, which we have no idea. Normally it takes us 10 years to develop a vaccine and we push this through in one year. Now, I'm not saying that's, it may be work out very fine, but, but, but it is a, a bit of a risky thing to do. And if you're a very low risk individual, you might want to think you know, twice about it. Over. Okay, thanks. Ruben, quickly. Yes, thank you. No, I, going back, I think you, you need both and you need both strong, good nutrition, good vaccines. And I, you know, going back to the topic of uh, how to strengthen national agricultural research systems, Prasanna mentioned biofortification. It's a great example of uh, natural biofortification as you do the fantastic uh, crop improvement, plant breeding, you have iron, zinc, vitamin A, and so on. That's, that's one way, but that's a very small program. So why don't we escalate that program and build with the private sector? And really that's, that's a fantastic program that has been proven for 15 years, Harvest Plus. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's one example on the nutritional part that the CGR could balance a little more uh, the portfolio of research and influence, ad advocate for more, including having in the national research system, in the public national research systems, uh, much more veterinarians and much more work, not only in plant breeding and crop science. How about the other part? I'm sure Ilri will be happy, but I think we need both. And at the same time, you know, I think they go, they both complement. So I, I, I think um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good way forward to do both and not, not, not try to you know, fight between nutrition and vaccines. Thanks. 
Okay, I'm gonna gonna cut off this particular line of of discussion right at the moment because we now um, maybe because of my poor time management have a <clears throat> a whole big list of questions and so let me uh, put some of these through and ask for short answers uh, and um, we'll uh, uh, hopefully be able to to get through some more of these these questions. So <clears throat> excuse me, Vivian Filippi of the uh, International Fund for Agricultural Development um, ask, uh, so which are the main challenges and opportunities provided by, <clears throat> excuse me, posed by the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic to publicly funded food and agriculture research? And how do you expect food systems to be innovated by the, <clears throat> excuse me, by the pandemic? Um, and will you know provide uh, prioritized investments in national agriculture research systems. So this is kind of a general uh, question about the impact of the pandemic. Um, do you want to, uh, Ruben? Do you want to do a quick response to this one? Uh, sure. I I I think uh, by it's a great opportunity to rethink. On nutrition, we we are all worried in the global north about where this food coming from. Is this clean traceability? Uh, all of this value change. Well, this is a great opportunity to to rethink uh, the research portfolio on on nutrition and connected to health. Where is the the origin of the of the, of the so uh, the origin of this current pro, uh, problem of COVID? So uh, I I I think uh, is. Um, rethinking the research portfolio much more on agriculture, on nutritional health, and, and change a bit the priorities that the public sector has had in the in the past, in addition to changing, of course, the policy framework, which it could be a bottleneck. Thanks. Um, another uh, re uh, question from Kerry wright Plate uh, from Colorado State asking, can the centers share with us research efforts that have taken place with their national partners um, since COVID, or excuse me, um, uh, sorry, I lost it here. Um, or uh, if you will, COVID research silver linings. So, have the centers responded to uh, with their national partners uh, since COVID to new uh, efforts? Um, anyone in particular want to take this one? Yeah, Carl, I can comment quickly. Uh, yes, um, for instance, uh, in case of Bangladesh, the centers came together, uh, the CG centers together with the Bangladesh national partners and uh, addressed how to build a, a comprehensive monitoring system for prioritizing and designing interventions that uh, respond to food systems disruptions from the COVID-19 pandemic and preemptively avoid further cascading uh, negative effects. So this work has highlighted uh, uh, some of the important areas that uh, especially infection safe agricultural input and output distribution logistics, uh, extended social safety nets, uh, adequate credit facilities and innovative labor management, uh, labor management tools uh, alongside appropriate farm mechanization all these things are absolutely important. It's, uh, there is no single solution that can help us 
recover and build resilient systems uh, during and co after COVID-19 pandemic. We need to think about it in a much more holistic way, much more inclusive way. As Rubin said, CGIR is a small drop in the ocean compared to uh, the national governments and their efforts to fight this challenge. So how best we can partner with the national governments and provide solutions uh, together uh, that can provide relief to these uh, communities is the critical issue. I think there are some excellent examples coming up, uh, uh, for example, in Bangladesh, for instance. Uh, yeah, that's a great, great example. Thanks very much. Uh, the, sorry, did somebody else have a comment? No. Yeah, Carl, this is Vish. So I, I was just going to say that 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 uh, based in being based in Nairobi, Kenya, and also the huge similarities between human and, and livestock uh, research per se. Um, we've been uh, we've been assisting the Ministry of Health here in Kenya more directly in terms of responding to COVID uh, the the outbreak here, both in terms of diagnostic testing um, and also with the counties here. Uh, Kenya has kind of a decentralized system of government. And, and that's now also leading to much more closer working relationship with the counties in terms of trying to, uh, first of all, map and then try to see what we can do about the impact of the COVID-19 outbreak with, within the livestock systems here in Kenya. Okay, very interesting. Um, let me move on to another one uh, from Maria, uh, sorry, John Maria. A PhD candidate from Wageningen. Uh, can the development of think globally, act locally management be a solution for agribusiness sectors to follow and thus be uh, funded in the pre in the post-COVID uh, era? Uh, anyone want to take that one on? I can't um, see. Uh, well, I, I can mention that the, most of the one we say for food systems is all private. Farmers is, are part of the private sector, value chains. Uh, so the government, of course, has a major role to play, but it's, it's a small, important, but small role. So I think agribusiness is, uh, is the way to go. When we talk about public-private partnerships, when we talk about national agricultural research systems, when we talk about innovation, uh, you need much more than uh, than research. You need uh, private sector to come in. So I I I I, I, I like that comment from coming from Baganingen. I think agribusiness it should be part of the solution. Thanks. Okay. Um, one, I guess the perhaps the last question. We only have a couple minutes left. Uh, this is uh, for Dr. Prasanna from uh, D. Dumalod at the University of Philippines. Um, how does one arrive at resilient systems? How are they designed? What is what's the composition of resilient systems, and how can we ensure they will provide resilience uh, before they are implemented? Uh, Prasanna, you know what we found in COVID, the agri business. It was the least resilient. You know. The most resilient was when the when when people came back from Nairobi to work in the village and grow tomatoes and sell them out of the back of the truck, and everyone hated it. 
the 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 government hated them because they don't they want to take that cut on everything. Um, and these people selling from the back of the trucks, they were selling for, you know, they paid no tax, they paid nothing. Um, and when I heard the last statement about agribusiness has to do it all, <sighs> agribusiness is there, we, we can't get away from it. But it sometimes, it, it, it sometimes makes people just serfs, you know, they, they are just kept basically not better much than slaves. And when they are running their own informal business, they are, they're their own entrepreneurs, they're in charge of what they do. Yeah, maybe they, they don't follow the regulations so well, but we have to be more open-minded, you know, we, we, we're so close-minded in, 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 this, in this business of agriculture. We're so close-minded and we hand everything over to the big players. And, you know, sometimes the small players can have a, a lot to offer. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you very much for listening to me. Okay, thank you. Um... So uh, I think maybe we'll have to call this to a halt now um, because it is uh, 10.54 and um, we've promised that uh, everyone would um, have a, uh, one thought or a few thoughts to close out. Um, and so we'll go, uh, I guess in alphabetical order or something, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, um, I have, uh, Ben first, um, do you have a, a final message, Ben? Great, thank you. A, a couple of very short points. Um, we, we've learned now the planet is fragile and we need to take better care of it. We must build back better by developing global responsibility and global leadership and working together, technology, is an essential part of this building back, back better. And it is imperative that we take civil society along with us. Thank you. Ruben? Yes, thank you. No, it's been a great discussion. And uh, I, I think from a national public research perspective in the Global South, uh, this is a great opportunity to rethink priorities and to rethink how we cooperate and do things together with our own uh, sister organizations in the country, with our regional organizations and platforms, and of course, with international organizations, including agribusiness. And they don't have to be big agribusiness, uh, including universities, civil society, federation of producers. So it's a great opportunity from the global south not to keep doing the same uh, because of the huge shock of COVID. And I am optimistic that uh, these new partnerships will work and we won't duplicate and we will have better priorities for research, including institutional change and policies. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Delia, a final word? Um, we'll come back to Delia if she comes back. Uh, Prasanna? Yes, I think uh, the way forward is to think not just from the perspective of recovery, but actually to build resilience. Resilience is not just coping with uh, what is happening at present, 
resiliency is about how to deal with unexpected events like this uh, in a much more informed way and with a better preparation for the future. Uh, this is not going to be the end of such pandemics. Unfortunately, they may recur again and again. And how do we build a planet uh, which is more sustainable? How do we prepare ourselves uh, for a, a more futuristic scenario? Learning from these lessons uh, is really, really important to me. And uh, that's where I think a confluence of institutions, organizations across the world need to come together and work together in a synergistic manner. Okay. Um, Vish? Yeah, so um, I, I really like what Ben and the others have had to say. Uh, I'm, so I'm not going to repeat those things. Um, from my perspective, what I am a little bit concerned about is maintaining the funding stream for all of this. It's all very well for us to have these great ideas and to talk about the change and to do all of the other things, but it's not going to happen without the money. And so I think if there's one thing that I would like to put across is to people who do make the decisions of where money is going to go to, hopefully this will be on the top of their list. Thanks. And uh, John McDermott. Yes, thank you, Carl. So um, prediction is hard, especially about the future. <laughs> and um, what? how can public research help in this and the CGR contribute critical research capacities under varied and unexpected futures as we're experiencing now. And I think there's two main things. One is the capability to adapt a wide range of knowledge and technology uh, to the work we're doing. And the second thing is to provide flexible institutional research support for decision makers uh, that to meet societal needs and, uh, and particularly under the uncertainty that they're going to be facing. So that's that's where I think maybe the role of public research is. Okay, well, um, Delia, are you back or you want to have the last word? Nope. Okay, um, so uh, I'll just uh, uh, finish by thanking everybody for their participation in, in lively discussion among each other and, and thanks for uh, comments and questions from uh, the audience more broadly. Um, and uh, I just want to uh, uh, say that it was, uh, I, I thought it was great discussion and, and I enjoyed it very much. Um, I also uh, am instructed to invite you to join IFPRI this Thursday at uh, February 4th at uh, 8.30 a.m. for the book launch event. And the book is Agricultural Development, New Perspectives in a Changing World. And um, also, uh, of course, I'd uh, say that uh, everybody, again, is welcome to uh, come to our, our virtual and um, maybe partially in-person in conference um, of uh, ICABR this summer, right at the end of June, I think June 29th through July uh, 2nd. So. Um, Thanks again, and uh, I, I think that's it.